Blog Talk Radio. around them. I thank you, Father, that you are a wall of fire round about them and that you set your angels round about them. And I thank you that because they dwell in the secret place of the Most High and they abide under the shadow of the Almighty, they will say of you, Lord, that you are their refuge, their fortress, and you they will trust. I thank you that you cover them with your feathers and under your wings shall they trust. They shall not be afraid of the terror by night or the fiery dart that flies by day. Only with their eyes will they behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because my listeners have made you, Lord, their refuge and fortress, no evil shall befall them, no accident will overtake them, neither shall any plague or calamity come near them, for you give your angels charge over them to keep them in all of your ways. And Father, I thank you because you've set your love upon them. Therefore, will you deliver them. They shall call upon you, and you will answer them. You will be with them in trouble, and will satisfy them with long life, and show them your salvation. Not a hair of their head shall perish. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give a little bit of a background on the subject of the prophet and the prostitute, and we will give you an opportunity to get a kind of understanding of where we're headed with this subject. Welcome to part two of the prophet and the prostitute. 
we're going to pick up where we left off on yesterday and we are covering the book of Hosea and we are doing a character uh, study on Hosea and on Gomer and on the children of Israel and on the tribe of Judah as well as the inhabitants and the situations and the circumstances surrounding the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea is one of the minor prophets, the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And at this particular time, Hosea is a part of the north of the, of the uh, children of Israel, of the Israelites, and he is a part of the northern kingdom. And he is having to receive a word for himself and then give a word to his own people and in the midst of this situation he is dealing with the unfaithfulness and the harlotry of his wife while God on the same scene is dealing with the harlotry and the unfaithfulness of his bride the church which we are and and we were then and God is allowing Hosea to see what it feels like to be um, cheated on, to be lied to, to be betrayed, to endure the infidelities and to have the marriage vows just obliterated and ignored and him personally being ignored and people chasing after the things that fulfill the lust of the flesh and worshiping other gods and not worshiping the true and living God and that is a parallel to the marriage covenant which God says that he is married to us and he's married uh, to the backslider and God was married to the backslidden in the book of Hosea but the interesting thing that I've found that I would really, really like to emphasize uh, tonight is that in the book of Hosea, they are now 650 years out after having left Egypt, after having crossed into the promised land. 650 years later, the things that God had called them into account for while they were in Egypt, the things that they were called into account for before they crossed over into the promised land, how is it that they managed to slip back into that state of apostasy 650 years later when all of the people um, that were rebelling against God, God allowed them to dwell in the wilderness for 40 years as opposed to 40 days, and one of the reasons was that all of the people who had defiled themselves with the false gods and with the rebellion were allowed to die out. They were allowed to die out in the wilderness and not enter into the... Now we're going to go into part three of the prophet and the prostitute. I wanted to give you a brief, brief overview of what we've been covering, and that was last night. So we were on at 10 p.m. last night, 10 until midnight last night, and wanted just to get you to understand that we are looking at something that is far deeper than what the eye can see. When we're talking about relationships with God, when we're talking about relationships with others, when we're talking about our relationships to ourselves, 
because that's where it all starts is that we have to first have that relationship between us and God that would allow us to be relatable and to be able to relate to other people. So here is the part that kind of puzzles me a little bit because here we are looking at the story of the book of Hosea, and this is 650 years after the Exodus. I keep coming back to that because I think about that in terms of generational curses, in terms of generational blessings, in terms of God granting us um, gifts and talents and God blessing us repeatedly and just handing down blessings to us and sometimes withholding things from us. But it has to be because he's God and it has to be because he's all-knowing and it has to be because he is always everywhere. At the same time, he doesn't sleep and he doesn't have need to counsel another man or another human being, for that matter, on the things that he chooses to do with his people and in this world and in this universe and how he deals with us. He deals with us individually. He deals with us corporately. He deals with us culturally. He deals with us on every level. And he is giving us a roadmap. He's giving us a roadmap on what do you do in a difficult situation? What do you do in a difficult time? And he's saying, here I am. I've shown them my love. I've shown them how much I care for them. And yet, yet they keep on doing that which displeases me. How can you justify that? How can you justify that? I really want to have us reason this out together. It says, you know, how can two walk together except they be in agreement? I really would like for us just to reason this out. So let's go into part three of the prophet and the prostitute. Welcome to part three of the prophet and the prostitute. We are studying the book of Hosea, and we're picking up on the meaning of the names. Once again, the name Hosea means salvation, and with his wife Gomer, it meant to be scattered. With his children, his names um, of his children, his firstborn was Jezreel, and we talked about how Jezreel was a indictment against the people in the northern kingdom for the bloodshed that had occurred at their hands. And so God had basically asked Hosea to simply obey him, simply trust him. And it's talking about simple faith, simple trust, simple obedience. And as a result of that, Hosea is given a word from God. He's asked, not just really given a choice, and who he was to marry, and he married a harlot at the commandments of God. His wife, Gomer, has a son, named him Jezreel, because God commanded that his son be named Jezreel. And that would be the prophecy that would be raised against the house of the northern kingdom that the bloodshed that had happened amongst them would be rewarded. So Jezreel's name means God scatters. And this is a prophecy of the children of Israel from the northern kingdom being dispersed to the four winds. Third, the couple has a daughter. God 
commands that she be named Laura Hama. Unloved didn't mean that God wasn't going to be merciful, but to be called unloved every time someone calls your name has an impact on your character. And this is the prophecy that was set up against the southern kingdom. That God said for the north, Jezreel was the prophecy that was going to be raised against them, that he was going to judge them, and that was going to happen. There was no way out of that. That was going to happen. But with the southern kingdom, God begins to temper it with some mercy. And this is the middle child. Then the third son that's born to Hosea and Gomer is dealing with the infidelity of the people of Israel. And this prophecy, he says, I'm commanding you to name this son Loami. Meaning you're not my people, you're not mine, so you're not mine, I'm not yours. You don't want to be my people, I don't want to be your God. So this is an imminent prophecy as well. And God is saying because of your sins, because of your transgressions, because of the iniquities before me and your perpetual infidelities and your perpetual wanderings and after your lust and after other gods, I am going to turn my back on you, and I will not recognize you anymore as my people. But somewhere in the midst of this is mercy, and mercy is lying in between judgment and God saying enough is enough. When God begins to judge, and judgment always starts with the church, and judgment always starts with his children. And he's saying, you know, I, I really don't want to do this, but your behavior and the things that you're doing really have not given me much of a choice. So what do you do? What do you do when something in your life isn't right, in a relationship, in life, in circumstances and situations, where life has handed you a bucket of dung and it has not been fair and you extended yourself and you're loving and you're not being loved and you're being mistreated and sometimes ignored what do you do how how do you strike that balance how do you strike that balance we want to see God for his model his way of doing things and his way of being and come up with a road map, if you would, for how we are to live life. Because life is happening all around us. And as long as we're here, we're going to be bombarded by life. Life happens, and when life happens, what choices do you make in response to life happening to you? We find that when Loami is born, and God says, you know, enough is enough. God changes his own name in connection with the current relationship with Israel. He says, I am that I am. He has always said, tell, he told uh, Moses to tell Pharaoh, tell them 
when you're asked who sent you, tell them, I am that I am sent you. Here, God is saying, 650 years after the Exodus, that my name is no longer I am that I am to you. I will not be all to you anymore. I am not your I am. You cannot expect for me to continue to bless you, to continue to provide for you, to continue to uh, respond to your cries. You cannot expect that from me. Enough is enough. After all that I've done for you, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you through the wilderness. I brought you into the promised land. I kept you. I preserved you. I allowed you to multiply. I allowed you to reap and, and, and reap and reap and reap where you had not sown. When you came into the promised land, you didn't work for that land. You had not sown anything in that land, but that land where someone else had labored in, I gave it to you as a reward for how you sought after me when you were in bondage in the land of Israel. And here I bring you into a land where you're free to worship me with all of your heart, and what do you do? 650 years later, this is how you repay me. And this is really quite difficult because the Jewish tradition is an oral tradition. And they're reading the Torah, and they're talking about the goodness of God, and they're conveying it as they walk with their children, and they're reminded of how great God has been in their lives, and the miracles and the signs and the wonders that God has done for them. But somewhere in the midst of this comes a seed, and that seed springs forth, and that seed defiles everything, and that seed is bitterness. It says, you know, that when the root of bitterness comes, that it's a little thing appearing to be a little thing, but it has great power to destroy everything around it. And you find that there is a seed of bitterness that has found its way into the hearts of the people. And it has defiled them, and it has created civil war amongst them. And God is saying, you know, I set my word against you, and I send my prophet to you to warn you of your behavior. But one thing you must know, in between your judgment and in between my not being your God, stands mercy. That I feel still for you, and I'm going to be merciful for you. So here you have basically Jesus on the cross. Because the middle child represents Jesus on the cross hanging between two thieves. Two people who needed to be judged and had sinned and had every right to be judged with someone who had done nothing except be born to take away the sins of the world. And no one desired him. No one desired to take the sins of the world upon them. And then there was none. There was no one who was qualified to take on the sins of the world except the only begotten Son. So when we get into chapter 2 of the book of Hosea, it begins to talk about divorce. God says, okay, I'm going to judge you, but I'm still going to have some mercy on you, but I'm going to turn my back on you. I don't want to have a relationship with you in the state that you're in Enough is enough. So he begins to talk about ending his covenant 
between himself and the northern kingdom because of the tremendous amount of apostasy that they're under. But here we find out that Gomer and her infidelity is speaking to the rejection that God feels because of how they've treated him. And then Hosea is commanded by God to end the prophecy by saying that God will one day renew this covenant and he will take you back. But right now, it's time to separate. It's time to separate. So then we move on to chapter 3. And it begins to talk about how God is commanding Hosea to seek Gomer out once more. She's either gotten into slavery uh, for debt or she is with a lover who's asking her to um, <laughs> basically ransom herself. And so Hosea has to buy her back. He takes her home. He doesn't have sex with her. And this symbolizes um, that God was not going to even have intimacy. He didn't want to inhabit them at all. And they were going to be without a king. But at one point, there was going to be a cost that was going to be paid in order for him to take them back. And this is speaking of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for us, who was buried, and he rose again, and he ascended up on high. That's the cost. That God paid to take away the veil that separated him from his people who had given really no reason for him to even want to be in a relationship with them. So then the following chapters in chapter 4 through 14 we find out that there are the oracles of God, there are prophetic messages still being spoken forth. And God is showing why he rejected the northern kingdom and what grounds he's basing his uh, terms of divorce on. And he is saying that he still loves them. And he doesn't want to give them up, but he has to give them up. So Hosea becomes salvation to the people because he begins to intercede before God for the people and he's asking for mercy like Jesus he's our intercessor he's our high priest he's asking for mercy he's asking for mercy and so here we find that God is saying he loves them but I can't accept you the way that you are but I don't want to give you up and Hosea is asking Israel to repent and he's asking God for mercy. And he is saying to them, you know, God wants you to, to ask for forgiveness. And if you'll ask for forgiveness, he'll restore the relationship. And if you'll return to him, he'll return to you. And if you'll be faithful to him, he'll be faithful to you. What do you do? What do you do when someone has been unfaithful to you? multiple times, multiple times, times and times and times and times and times again. What do you do? You still want them, you still love them, but what do you do? 
You have to draw the line somewhere, don't you think? We're going to go to the lines, and we are going to open up for uh, questions or comments um, about this topic. And uh, let's see how you would handle an unfaithful spouse. Hi, guest 3517. Would you like to have some comments? If you would, please feel free to call in on the call-in line of 646-929-1800. Mrs. Danielle, welcome to the show. If you'd like to call in, the call-in number is 646-929-1800. Okay. We're going to go into Hosea chapter 2. And in the book of Hosea chapter 2 at this point, we are dealing with the divorce. And God is basically asking Hosea to feel what he feels. He's asking Hosea to see what it feels like um, to have someone that you love constantly cheating on you. So what do you do? How, how do you handle that? How do you respond to someone who has been unfaithful? And God is saying, you know, over the years, this is a long-term relationship. This is not just a fly-by-night relationship. God has been in covenant with the children of Israel ever since um, Abraham. He had cut a covenant, and he said to Abraham, you know, that he was going to fulfill his covenant. Yet you find because Abraham, the sins of the father, being visited upon the children, Ishmael and Isaac, and the whole perpetuation of the cultural differences, the genetic differences, the covenant differences, because Isaac was the son of promise. Ishmael was the son of the flesh. And you have the promise and the flesh warring against each other constantly and repeatedly. So 650 years after God brought them out with a strong arm, with a mighty salvation, you find them right back doing what it was that got them swallowed up in the wilderness that did not permit them to enter into the promised land. How is it? Since naturally, naturally, if you look at the progression of them coming out of the wilderness, the people who were the rebels were allowed to die in the wilderness. The people who didn't believe God were allowed to die in the wilderness. Yet, 650 years later, after coming into the promised land, you see the same tendencies. So, if it wasn't something that was handed down by oral um, storytelling, it wasn't handed down because those people died out in the wilderness. This is spirit. This is spirit. This is the promise warring with the flesh. And, but because God had done such a work 650 years later, uh, a, a people who were accustomed to oral traditions and, and speaking 
about the goodness of God and rehearsing the goodness of God and who traveled such distances to go on the pilgrimages to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, to worship in the temple. They had made such strides in doing that. You find them now, they've gone from being lukewarm to just outright cold, outright cold. So you start out and, and you tie this into the church. And, you know, when we first come to Christ, oh, my God, we're so excited and we just want to save the world. You just want to save the world. But somewhere in the midst of that, that same propensity rests in all of us, where once we're on fire for God, we're loyal, we're faithful to him. We can't imagine being without him. We can't imagine not worshiping him, not going to church, not praising him, not lifting him up, not having him talk to us, not having him tell us how much he loves us and cares for us and how much he wants to bless us. And then we just kind of just begin to coast. Some of us, not all of us, but some of us begin to just coast and we just get used to the relationship and it gets comfortable like a nice pair of shoes that you just want to slip in and out of. And then we kind of come to church and maybe we're not there when we should be there and maybe, you know, we aren't really paying attention when we're in service or maybe, you know, somebody's talking to us about God and it just doesn't excite us anymore. And then um, we have this longing that all of a sudden we begin to feel this this angst. And it's like, you know, mm, you know, I need something. It's like something's missing. What is it? Something's missing. And, and I need something to, to reignite that passion that's inside of me. But something has died. And the relationship begins to grow dim. And, and we come to church and we, we begin to run revivals, you know, revive the people, revive us, Lord, revive us, Lord, take us back to our first love, revive us, revive us, revive us. And so we, we put on great uh, revivals and we get the people revved up and we get them all, you know, riled up and, and ready to go back in and take the kingdom and the evangelist is gone. And within a matter of days or weeks or months, we kind of drift back off. And God is like, you know, wow, you know, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed their praises. I enjoyed their worship. I enjoyed their time with me. But now they come just gone right back to doing what they do. So if you take this same scenario and you see, uh, what is it, uh, when you're courting somebody, when you go through the engagement process and then you get married and then you go on the honeymoon and then the honeymoon is over and then maybe for about the first year or two, you know, you're happy newlywed, maybe three, four, five. And, but somewhere in the midst of that, it's like, you know, is this all there is? You know, the things that they used to do to um, make you so in love with them and so excited to be with them now become the things that get on your nerves. What is it about relationship? What is it about covenant that it begins to grow old? It, it, it just doesn't feel as good as it used to feel. What is it that makes us as a people fall into these same patterns repeatedly and repeatedly when we know the consequences and we know what's going to happen down the road? ahead if we continue to be lukewarm and to be cold with God. It carries over into our relationships at work. It carries over into our relationships with our with our spouses. It carries over into our relationships with our children and our coworkers and our peers and our friends and our family. It just affects every 
single thing that we go to do. So God is telling Hosea, you know what, I've had enough. I've had enough. I mean, I have been their God, and I have provided for them, and I've done everything in the world that they needed me to do. I've been bread in the desert. I've been water out of the rock. I mean, I have just been there, and these people still take me for granted. That's enough. That's enough. So he begins to outline the terms for divorce. (laughs) He says, you know, I am going to divorce these people. And he's primarily focusing on the northern kingdom because by this time um, they have had to divide themselves because they are so apostate that now it's like you draw a line in the sands, you know what, well, you know, you you just – crazy. You you have really gone off the deep end and you have really gotten out there and you're mixing in what God has told us with, with Baal and everything else. And, and they begin to fight. They begin to fight amongst themselves and then they become a divided kingdom. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And God is most disappointed with the northern kingdom. And he is calling Hosea, who is a member of the northern kingdom, to prophesy against his own land, against his own people. But how he performs that is is that he first gives the word to Hosea about himself. At this time, Hosea is not married, but Hosea is a single eligible man to marry whomever he wants to marry. And then God comes in and he says, you know what? All I can tell you is that um, you're going to get married, but when you get married, you're going to marry a harlot. You're going to marry a prostitute. You're going to marry somebody who is unfaithful. She didn't become a prostitute. She was already a prostitute. So when God told him that, him knowing the voice of God and not being conformed to the world and what people thought, he went and he obeyed God and he married this prostitute. When we first opened up with uh, part one, we said, you know, this is not gender. This is spirit. This is spirit. It is possible for a man to be a prostitute. It's possible for a woman to be a prostitute. It is a spirit. It is a spirit. And that's what we're dealing with is the spirit. It is the condition of the spirit because 650 years after the exodus, 650 years after the exodus, this is what happens. The love grows cold. The love grows cold. And the things that used to move you and the things that used to excite you don't excite you anymore because something is missing. Something is missing in the mix. So he says, um, because they cheated on me, he says, you know, I am going to visit them. But when I visit them, God will visit us for one or two reasons. He will visit us to bless us. He will visit us to um, judge us. And God is coming not in the form of blessing them because he's already blessed them. And, and, and you know, we have all these bumper stickers that says, you know, uh, God bless America. God was speaking to my heart, and he says, you know what, it's time for America to bless me. I've already blessed America. It's time for America to bless me. And here you you see this, this parallel, and he says, you know, uh, I can't do this anymore. I, I don't want 
even to even be in their presence. I mean, I'm so disappointed with them that I don't even want to be in their presence. I don't. I don't even want to respond to their. They're calling my name or touching or, or reaching up for me or crying out for me. Can you imagine being in the Northern Kingdom? And to me, I think about that. Not everybody in the Northern Kingdom had to have been doing the same thing, but God was about to divorce the whole Northern Kingdom because the majority of the Northern Kingdom was not following after him. So here you are caught up in the midst of something, and maybe you're not even guilty of it, but you're about to receive the reward of what they did. You're going to be punished because of the company you keep. This is, this is, I guess, you know, guilt by association, I, I guess would be a good way uh, to say that. So when he visits them in Hosea chapter 2, verse 6, he says, you know, I am going to uh, take up a hedge, um, and it says, therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her path. God says, in Hosea chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her path. He was going to make her, like, you know, in the word we say that God would take your crooked places and make them straight. God is saying, I'm going to take your straight path and I'm going to make them crooked. But on top of making them crooked, I'm going to put thorns along the way. And I'm going to put walls up where they didn't used to be walls and, and where you're accustomed to just going straight down this path and getting to your destination. I'm going to make it difficult, and you're going to have to take detours to get to the same place. I'm going to cause you to have to go roundabout just to get to where you used to get. When God comes in and he begins to set up roadblocks in your life and, and things aren't working the way they used to work and, and it's more difficult for you to accomplish the things that God has asked you to accomplish, what do you do? What, what do you do in, in this process? So then he says in verse 7, he says, And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. He is saying that, like Gomer is running out in the streets. He is fed up with her. She's been able to find her lovers and, and cheat and, and have babies by her lovers and stuff and all of this. And he has just gone along with the program. He says, but now I'm about to make it hard on her to go out and cheat on me. And this is where Gomer begins to find herself being auctioned off. She goes to her lovers, and her lovers, I guess, you know, say, you know what, this is old. I, I don't even enjoy being with you anymore. Uh, so I think the best thing I can do is put you up on the block and see how much I can get for you. So he begins to uh, allow her to be prostituted on top of being a prostitute. So I guess basically pimps, that, that, that would be a good enough. I mean, she was already a prostitute, but now she comes into being a pimp, being pimped out. So Hosea finds out about it, and he goes, and he redeems her from the situation. Then she goes, and she cheats again in different scenarios, and she ends up uh, being held for ransom. And then he decides, well, you know, I'm going to go and get her again. But now, all this time, what these people who used to be her lovers now aren't her lovers anymore. So she's found it difficult to do what she used to do. And so 
God thought, well, if I do that, then maybe she'll turn and she'll come back to me. So he enacted this out in Hosea's life. You know, maybe if I make it difficult and hard for her to do what it is that she's accustomed to doing, cheating on me and being unfaithful to me and bringing in all these other uh, children um, into the picture that don't even have any part of my covenant with me, maybe if I make it hard for her to do what it is that she does, maybe she'll stop doing it. You know, we talk about tough love. You know, if I just toughen up on them, if I just toughen up on them, maybe they won't keep doing it. You know, I'm just going to show them some tough love. Well, in her case, it didn't seem to really work. So it said, for she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Now, the thing, the wealth that God had given her through being married, she was taking it out. And she's giving them over to Baal. So therefore will I return in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9, therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof and will cover my wool and my flax given to cover her neckness. Now, verse 8 and verse 9 is really key in this chapter because what has happened here is that when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, they were allowed to take wealth out of Egypt. And that corn and that wine and that oil is what God is talking about here 650 years later. The corn, the wine, and the oil that he gave them when they were coming out of Egypt, when they could go into the promised land and be sustained and have an inheritance for their children and their children's children, they've taken this money now and they've thrown it to the calf, to the idols. They're worshiping the idols with it. And God says, guess what? You know what? I'm going to let the people that I took this money from come back and get their money because you don't know how to handle it. You know, it would be better to let me go ahead and let them do what they're going to do with it. So you find throughout this story that ultimately the Egyptians come in and they pillage the northern kingdom and they take back what God had given them from them. I, I think that's fascinating because what do you do with the blessings that God gives you? Do you use them on things that are idle? You know, do you worship your money? Do you worship things? Do you worship uh, objects and, and, and whatever you can get your hands on? You just spend your money on anything, but you don't use it to glorify God, don't use it for the upbuilding of the kingdom. Then God says, you know, I'm not going to keep on blessing you. I'm going to let them come in and take what I gave you away from you which is what I had originally taken from them. It says, like, the wealth of the wicked is laid up for the just. Well, he says, you know what? I transferred the wealth over to you, but you didn't know how to handle that wealth, so now I'm going to go back and I'm going to take that wealth and I'm going to give it back to the wicked. Now, you're talking about a reversal of fortune. I think that is, that, that is absolutely just unbelievable. But it's right here in the Word. And then now in uh, Hosea chapter 2, verse 10, and he says, and now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of my hand. Uh, verse 11 says, I will also call all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. 
and I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, wherefore, whereof she has said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. She is proud of the things that her lovers have given her in the face of her husband. I've seen stories. I haven't actually experienced this, but I've seen enough stories on, on air in the movies where women receive items and stuff from their lovers or former lovers or whatever, and they're married, and they continue to wear these things and, and knowing full well that their husbands didn't give them to them. So they, they wear the things that their former lovers gave them. They wear the things that um, maybe somebody that they're cheating with has given them and expect for God to just nod at that and say, okay, you know, that's okay. But he's saying to them, and uh, causing all her mirth to cease that he intended for the holy days and the holy feast to be a time where they would rejoice in his blessings and that they would not just be coming together as a social event. They had turned the feast into just social events. Oh, hey, Susie. Hey, Sally. Good to see you. How's how's Jose doing? How's Joseph doing? How's Isaiah doing? All of this. It was a social event instead of a solemn day of feast. And they were sitting there and they were just laughing it up and everything. And it was just like a big party to them. It was not about the covenant. It was not about the relationship anymore. And God says, now the feast of God uh, commanded were no longer his feast. They had become hers. They had become Israel's feast. They were mere social gatherings celebrated with empty rituals. And he was about to come in and change it all around. When he gets into verse 13, he says, And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam when she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers, and forget me, saith the Lord. I mean, God is angry, and he's hurt. He, he feels the rejection, and he has allowed Hosea to feel the same rejection that he's feeling. And he says, I'm going to visit my people, and... I'm going to enter into the situation, and I'm going to do something about it because I'm sick and tired of it. I am sick and tired of it. I am absolutely sick and tired of it. So he's saying, now, I am going to enter into this situation, and I'm going to show them that I am going to remove my blessing off of this. So he steps in, and he begins to bring judgment upon them for their sins and their idolatry. And in verse 14, it says, therefore, I will allure her. I will allure her, in verse 14, and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And then I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the days when she came up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 16, and it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi and shall call me no more Bailey. Verse 17 says, For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And verse 18, And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. Verse 19 says, And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercy. Verse 20 says, And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. 
Verse 21 says, And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, and I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. Verse 22 says, And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. Verse 23 says, And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. So going back to verse 14, he's talking about when he's going to allure her, he is going to go in between bringing her into a false sense of security. To allure someone is to draw them in and make them think that everything is okay, but once you get them in and they have just kind of gotten comfortable, then all of a sudden, you know, the tables turn. And so one minute he's warning of judgment, and then the next minute he's promising them hope and restoration. One minute he's saying, I'm going to have mercy on you. The next minute, I'm going to judge you. It's like when when you uh, discipline a child. You know, I love you. It hurts me to punish you. I love you. It hurts me to punish you. And children are like, you know, if you love me, why are you hurting me? And so love is not always something that makes us feel good. Love comes at a price. Love comes at a cost. And love sometimes doesn't always make us feel good. Love is not a feeling. Love really is more of an action because it's a fruit. It's a fruit, and it's something that has to be eaten, and it's something that has to be digested and ingested and has to get into your system. So the love of God that he's talking about here is that his agape love that he has for us supersedes. It should be the foundation for every relationship that we have because perfect love casts out all fear. And the love of God never ceases, and the love of God is from breast to breast and from cheek to cheek, and the love of God covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't excuse the sin, but it covers. It's possible to love somebody and not love what they do. God is saying, these people, I love them, but what they're doing, I cannot accept. Being a poster boy or a poster girl for bad behavior is what got them into this situation. So the alternation between I'm going to judge you, I'm going to restore you, um, says that God has revealed a great and marvelous contrast. In his grace, he was still called Israel to return. Come, come back to me. Come back to me. Come back to me. I love you. I love you. But no, I can't accept you like that. So when they were coming out of the Exodus, God brought them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, and he gave them the law, and he led them into the promised land, and he said that I will bring you again out of Egypt of their sin into a new wilderness where he would guide, teach, and restore them. And he's talking about Jesus. That This is talking about the coming of Jesus Christ where he is going to come in. He's going to have mercy. I'm going to have to judge you. There's no way that I can't judge you. But because if I judge you, I would totally annihilate you. The, the, the whole principle behind the Holocaust was to commit genocide, to wipe a people off the face of the earth. And God would not allow a mere man to destroy his creation. But he's saying if I was to release my wrath on you, you would utterly be destroyed. There would be not a trace of you anymore. But God says, you know what, I, I've got to judge you because you've been wrong. You've been bad. I have got to judge you, but I'm going to give mercy. 
I'm going to give mercy. And so Jesus steps in into this passage basically with Hosea because Hosea basically translates to Jesus, to Joshua, to salvation. And he's saying, you know, I'm going to send my salvation and I'm going to temper my judgment with salvation, with mercy, because I don't want to utterly destroy you. I don't want to utterly destroy you, but I'm going to judge you. Make no doubt about that. You are going to be judged. And then he says, now, once I do that, I'm going to guide you and I'm going to teach you and I'm going to restore you. And then when we're talking about verse 20, he says, now, I'm going to betroth them unto me in faithfulness. And betrothal is a covenant. It's, you don't even uh, understand uh, someone walking up to you and say, will you marry me? Because back then it was a contract. When you became betrothed to someone, you hadn't even actually physically consummated the marriage or anything like that, but you were basically ascribed to marry that person. There was only so many ways out of that betrothal. And God is saying, I'm making a covenant with you. And so Jesus became that covenant. And he says, I'm binding myself in marriage to you. And that means that from this point on, once Jesus comes, he is forever married to the backslider. He is forever married to the backslider. There is absolutely no way for God to ever divorce his people anymore. But he did it for a season. He set up a wall of separation, and he issued a bill of divorcement, and the conditions for the bill of divorcement was that my people, which are called by my name, should humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, pray, call out to me with their whole heart, and then I would respond to them. But here we find now God says, you know, I'm going to enter back into a covenant relationship with you one day. But right now, I'm going to judge you, and we're going to have to get the divorce. So here he's saying, I'm going to have my love for you to redeem you, and I'm going to let you know how real I am, and I'm going to cause you to have a personal relationship with me. Because right now, these people don't really have a personal relationship with God. And a personal relationship with God is far greater than a head relationship with God, that you think you know about him and you know about his ways. When he comes into your heart and he becomes your Lord and Savior, then it becomes personal because when God becomes Lord and Savior of your life, he has Jesus being an advocate, a high priest, a lawyer on your behalf, ever making intercession for you. But at the same time, he's saying to you that I want to show you my ways and I want to teach you an excellent way and I want to teach you how to live this life that I have asked you to live. But I'm going to give you the ability to do it without fear of me, without what you think I might do to you, because I want you to love me on purpose. I want you to be intentional about your relationship with me. I want you to be intentional about your love for me. So he says God was looking for righteousness in the relationship. He was looking for justice. He was looking for a steadfast love. He was looking for kindness. And he was looking for faithfulness in his people. And he wanted to see the manifestation of that faithfulness to him with sincere love, not just to him, but to his people. He wanted them to be compassionate with each other. He wanted them to show the love that he was showing them to one another. And in verse 23, we read that, and he says, Now I'm going to sow unto her, sow her unto me in the earth. So he had a purpose and he had a plan. Remember Jeremiah 29 and 11, that God knows the plans that he has for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you an expected end. He wants you to succeed. He wants you to prosper. He says that my purpose for this is for my people and bringing them out of Egypt was to establish a covenant relationship with them, and that has always been his purpose for us. 
He has always wanted to have a covenant with us, and we be his people, and he be our God. So he is saying to us once again, when we get into, uh, start coming into um, chapter 3, that he's going to turn back to them. But the conditions have to be met. The conditions of the covenant have to be met. There is absolutely no way for God to change his mind anymore. He will no longer destroy the earth by flood. So he put a rainbow in the sky to remind us of his covenant that he said he would no longer do that. He said that even now, he says, I will not remember your sins. I will blot out your transgressions. I will cast them away from you as far as the east is to the west. Because whenever I look at my people now, I see the blood of my son, my only begotten son. I paid the cost, just like I said I would do in the book of Hosea. The prophecy of Hosea is the foretelling of the coming of the Messiah. That he's saying, I'm going to have mercy on you, but I'm going to have to judge you. So somebody has to submit to the judgment that needed to be measured out, and that was Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. He took on the sin of the world. He took on the judgment of his own father so that we might be free. So when we come into to, to agreement, into relationship with God, he's requiring something from us. And what he wants from us is to go into an intimacy with him, into a relationship with him that is not about things. It's not about stuff. It's not about other people. It's not about um, what we think we might want. It's not about what someone tells us we must have. There is absolutely no way to justify anything that we want to do just because we want to do it. God says that when he calls us into holiness, he calls us into a high place. He calls us into a place that goes beyond the petty, that goes beyond the trivial. It goes beyond doing what it is that's okay because somebody else is doing it. It's not okay to do what other people do because God is calling us out. He's looking for people. He's looking for a relationship. He's looking for intimacy. He wants you to get into him so he can show you how much he's into you. And when you get into him, whatever anybody else is doing, it doesn't matter who's doing what to who and who's not doing what with you. When God gets into you and you get into him, when God gets into you and you get into him, when God gets into you and you get into him, God says that I will inhabit you. I will love on you. I will show you my love. I will show you my mercies. I will make your crooked places straight. I will make your low places high and your high places low. God says I'm going to remove all the obstacles. I'm going to give you sweatless victory. I'm going to cause the things in your life to line up. But the things that we think are the enemy pressing in on us. Remember, we have the promise and the flesh warring against one another. The promise is saying, walk ye this way, and the flesh says, uh-uh, I'm going to walk this way. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it that way. But yet we expect God to bless us. Yet we expect God to bless us, and we expect for God to do for us when we won't do for God the simple things, the simple things. It doesn't take much to please God because we no longer have to do the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments have been been fulfilled and manifested through Jesus Christ. He is calling us for love. He wants to romance on us. He wants to fill us, and he wants to indwell us, and he wants to show us all the things that he has for us. There are lofty things and high things that God has for us. And the only way that we are going to see them is if we would simply turn from our wicked ways. 
turning from my wicked way. He says, if my people, he's not even talking to the sinner. He says, my people, he's talking about the people who say that they are called by his name. If my people who are called by my name would turn from their wicked ways. I mean, if we have wicked ways and the sinners have wicked ways, but God is saying, you know, your ways should be pleasing to me. It's okay for the sinner to be acting like that. It's okay for them to be flipping out in the streets and, and doing whatever they want to do and taking on all kinds of things. But God is saying, you know what, you're my people. You're my people. And if you would simply do what it is that I'm asking you to do, then the winners of heaven would just be wide open to you and just would overwhelm you, overtake you. He says your blessings would chase you down. They would chase you down if you would simply turn from your wicked ways. My people, not the sinners, but my people. I see that I have uh, Nova Yadson and uh, T-R-D-I-O-P-I-N in the chat room. And Mrs. Neal, thank you for still staying on the line with us. Um, would you like to have any questions or comments? Please feel free to call us at 646-929-929. One eight zero zero. I'd like to play a song for you that is by Karen Wheaton, and it's talking about being between porch and altar. God is crying out. God is crying out to us, and He's saying, you know, I need my people that are called by my name to come to me, to come to me and cry out to me. So I hope you'll enjoy this. Amen, amen, amen. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed that because thank you, uh, Nova. Um, I will uh, make note of that and I will give back uh, to you. Thank you so much. Um, and, and the whole purpose of uh, Patricia Adams' Live is to share what God has placed in my heart and what God has asked me to do. I desire to be obedient. I desire for God not to have to judge me uh, because I refuse to obey. And whatever God asks me to do, that's what I desire to do. And so I'm here on blogtalkradio.com at Patricia Adams Live because God has asked me to do this. Um, and so I'm here, and I'm hoping and praying that the blessing that he has put into my life will be a blessing to you. Because truly God has been faithful in my life, and I understand 
how difficult it is to live a saved life, but it becomes really, really easy. I remember the saints of old um, saying, you know, it gets sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. And it does. It, it really, really does. And I wish, you know, you kind of say hindsight being twenty twenty. you kind of wish that you knew that back then when you were out there doing your thing and, and, and just acting and, and behaving unseemly. And uh, thank God for grace. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God for sending his mercy to us so that when he judged us, now we have been judged righteous because we are now the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. This is what has made it possible for us to do with the children of Israel. You can't really throw stones at the children of Israel, and you know why? Because they did not have salvation as we have salvation. They had to rely on someone else to go into the temple and offer up a sacrifice for them once a year and hope that that would be good enough to get them to the next year. But God says on a daily basis, every day you get up, my mercies are new for you every single day. And I'm here to enable you to do what it is that seems difficult in your life. And sometimes the difficulties in our lives are things that God would use to prune us, to refine us, to purify us, to sanctify us, and to cause us to be vessels of honor and not vessels of dishonor. It's not going to be easy. Absolutely not going to be easy. But the thing that does get easy is the trust, the trust. It becomes easier to trust God when you realize that if it had not been for the grace of God, I would not have made it. I would not have made it as far as I've made it if it had not been for the grace of God because when the enemy would come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raised up a standard. And I know for a fact that God says that he is faithful. I've watched him be faithful. I've watched him be faithful. There is no situation, there is no circumstance that you're not facing that God cannot work out, that God cannot get the glory out of. There may be some adjustments and some some decisions that you have to make. But ultimately, your decisions and adjustments that you make ought to be coming from the mouth of God. They ought to be coming directly from him. I am not in a position to counsel anyone. I do recommend people go to uh, your local church. And if you don't have a local church, I suggest strongly that you find one. Not just find one for the sake of finding one, but find one where the unadulterated word of God is being preached because it is the word of God that will save us, set us free, and deliver us and bring liberty to our hearts and our souls and our minds. And, you know, I remember thinking about um, going to a church and, and I saw this great big water bug uh, walking across, slowly across the carpet of the church. And we were in service and I thought about it. I'm like, you know, we were all just kind of sitting there and just humdrum and everything. And I said, you know, I, I think almost like that cockroach, if that cockroach has the audacity to come across this carpet while we're in service, uh, then, you know, we don't have it jumping. You know, the Spirit of the Lord, I just thought, you know, even a cockroach ought to be excited, you know, because cockroaches kind of uh, move by vibration. And so if we had been really jumping, you know, he probably would have just been scurrying across uh, the carpet, but we would just, you know, at a lull. And I thought about that. I said, God, I said, you know, when I was in the world and I was clubbing and everything, if the club wasn't jumping, I had to go. And if I couldn't do anything to help it get jumping, I had to go. I had to find some place that was exciting because, first of all, even if it was ladies' night and I didn't pay a dime to get in, I did not want to be in a dead club. 
God does not want to be in a dead situation with you either. He wants it to be jumping. He wants it to be exciting. He wants you to enjoy being with him, and he wants you to enjoy being in his presence. And I am an author, and I have a series of books, uh, five in a volume, and it's called The One Heart Series, and it's about an inductive study on intimacy with God. Ultimately, as we come into 2009, I will begin teaching on this material um, over the the radio broadcast. But right now, I'm laying a framework with you to get you to know me a little bit better and um, to kind of get you to come in and, and let's talk and let's reason together so that you can understand my heart, where it's coming from, and what God is calling me to do. And, and so this is a huge place, this is a huge platform that God has given all of us to do, and there's plenty of space for all of us to do what God has called us to do. This is the new tool, in a sense, of evangelism, but it's, in a sense, it's the new tool of kingdom business, because it's about more than just feeling good, and, and I don't know how you feel about uh, the gifts and, and all of this, but it's about doing business in the kingdom. So we're going to be dealing with some business issues. We're going to be dealing with some entrepreneur issues. We're going to be dealing with some communication issues and dealing with business development and personal development. But in the process of that, at the foundation of all of this, we want to get into God. And so what God has done in my life is he made me intimate with him. He took me out of being intimate with multiple people and brought me into a fidelity, a faithful relationship with him. He has been my Lord and my Savior for over 20 years now, and he brought me into a place of fidelity with him where I, I used to roll in and out of relationships and in and out of situations and everything that God made me faithful. God made me a virtuous woman. He made me a Proverbs woman, and he has kept me because I desire to be kept, and I no longer have a defiled bed. I love him with my whole heart, and I am seeking him for what he has me to do, because it's my reasonable service. I owe him my life. I owe him everything about myself. Everything that I am is because of him. And so I am here pouring out my oil um, into vessels that are here that come along, because that's what God told me to do. He says, you have oil. I need you to pour that oil into vessels. So I thank you for coming in and joining me today. And I hope that you will go back and listen to the archive messages. And I've been forgetting to tell uh, and ask, not really tell, but ask you to rate the shows, please, if you would. And uh, I have another song that I'd like to play before uh, we go out. And uh, once again, if you'd like to make any comments or questions, the line is open at 646-929-1800. Amen. And we are going to listen to a song, um, just a clip out of a song by um, Marvin Sapp, and many of you probably know it, and it's called I Never Could Have Made It. Never would have made it. Never could have made it without you. I would have lost it all. But now I see how you were there for me And I can say never would have made it Never could have made it without you I would have lost it all But now I see how you were 
Okay, I know, but I'm going to go out to your uh, site and I'll um, make myself a reminder of that. Um, I'll mark a reminder so that I'll uh, get back to you on it, okay? So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it once again. And um, I'd like to just, if we would, close in our prayer. And once again, if you do want to have any comments, feel free, or you can just, you know, send a chat. As you know, you can do that as well. And I thank you for chatting with me while we've been on the air. Um, Father God, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for those who are assembled here, and I thank you, God, that your blood covers them. I thank you, God, that your word goes out and it does not return void, but it accomplishes that which you sent it to do. God, I thank you that you know these listeners and you know who they are. You know the needs that they have, that there is no distance with you in the spirit that... I fall in this progression, God, that you would get the increase and that you would get the glory and that what needs to be done in their lives, God, would be done. If it's a quick work, God, then I thank you for the quick work. Father, if it's a deep work, I thank you for the deep work, God. If it's a purification, if it's a sanctification, God, I thank you for that because you said that you want us to show compassion, show your love one for another as you love us. And, God, I thank you that right now, You've taught us that we have no stones to throw. But we thank you that even now that as we are coming together on this platform of blogtalkradio.com, God, that you give us wisdom. You give us the insight and the concepts and the innovations that we need to have and the ability to share with one another freely, Father. I thank you without fear, without doubt, without wrath. And, God, I thank you even now that your blood is flowing freely from the cross of Calvary, that it's flowing from the mercy seat, and that your spirit is being poured out upon all flesh. And I thank you that even now that you're quickening the hearts, the souls, and the minds, and you're peeling back the layers of the onion, Father, that has kept them bound and has kept them encased and kept them in a box because, God, you are doing a new thing. You're doing a new thing as evidenced by us being able to gather on this line, and you have a need for your people to be just as fresh and exciting as the things that we are taking part in. So, God, I thank you for the freshness. I thank you for the new anointings. I thank you for the new grace and the new mercy. I thank you for the revelations, God. I thank you for pulling up the roots of bitterness. I thank you for pulling up the roots of fear and despair and despondency and disappointment and rejection, God, and I thank you that you're going to Welcome us, God, into your arms, that as we fall in love with you, God, that everything else falls in place, God. I thank you that as we make you the center of our lives, God, that you order our steps and you remove the chaos out of our lives. Father, in Jesus' name, we give you the praise and we give you the glory and the honor for it, and we give you all the glory that's due your name because your name is high and lifted up, and we thank you. You said that if we would lift you up, you would draw all men unto you. And I thank you, God, and I hope that you are pleased with our service today, that we have lifted you up high, 
and that we have lifted you up and we have caused men to come into a deeper understanding of who you are and who you want to become in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we have 14 minutes remaining right now. And Nova, thank you. I will be in touch. And um, I'm really wanting to say this right, but I see it's T-R-D-I-O-P-N, and I don't know if that stands for something. If it does, you know, please let me know. And I'm trying to um, to pull that up and uh, see exactly um, so that I'm not talking to you uh, blankly. Okay, so hi, how are you? I see I see a young man and what looks like to be a child. So thank you for uh, participating and thank you for being there, Mrs. D. Neal. Thank you so much. I love uh, looking at everybody's profile and everything. And God has really been good and God has been faithful, has he not? I know he has because here we are. And one other thing that I wanted to share with you uh, as we were closing out is that uh, for many of you, this is about to be the close of another year. And uh, it has been a difficult year for a lot of us, and I think all over the world, uh, not just in the body of Christ, but outside of the body of Christ, people have found this a difficult year. But I'd like to encourage you to look into the uh, the years of uh, the Jewish calendar, because right now, technically, um, the day that Wall Street crashed by 777 points um, was the day before the Jewish New Year. And it's called the head of the year. So basically the Jews are already in a new year, and it's called 5769. And if you would Google 5769, I think you're going to find it quite interesting, and you're going to find it quite prophetic because the word that's traveling amongst the Jewish community, even those who are not Messianic Jews, is that this is a year of collaboration. This is a year that we do nothing alone and that God has a blessing for us corporately in this hour. So technically... I say Happy New Year to you. Um, Happy New Year started in September for me, and it is the year of 2008, 2009, 5769, and this is the year of collaboration. So I find it quite rewarding and fulfilling that we will um, do nothing alone when we are doing something for the kingdom of God, be it business, be it relationships, be it um, interacting with one another, that we find a way to overcome our odds and our obstacles and um, our differences, and we find a way to do it all for the glory of God. Whatever we find our hands to do, may we find it and do it as unto the Lord, and may he get the glory, and may he get the praise and the honor for it. And once again, I will say thank you. I will say thank you so very much for your attendance, and I hope that you will tune in again tomorrow. Um, we don't have a static time. I'm really trying to find um, my way through all of this. And um, like I said, we were on last night from 10 o'clock until midnight, and that was a great time as well. And uh, we were on the day before from 12 until, I believe, 2 o'clock. And right now we uh, did uh, 90 minutes from 3 until 4.30, which we are fast approaching up on 4.30. I'm in Central Standard uh, Time. And um, so I'd like to get your feedback. You know, I'd love to have you guys uh, come and share um, again. And so I believe that there's a reason why some of you, you know, have, have been coming through. And I'm hoping that whatever it is that God has in me that you need, that you pull it out of me. Um, and so I'm looking for uh, your feedback, and I'm looking for you to share with me 
what's on your heart. If you've got some suggestions for things that you'd like to see me discuss um, on the show, be more than happy to do that. Please uh, post the comments, and I do look at the comments as well. And um, once, like I said, in 2009, we will begin discussing the One Heart series, and that's a series of five books that I've written, and it's dealing with intimacy with God. And the first one is entitled With Oneness of Heart, and you can go to my website, www.patriciaadams.us, and you can order the books there if you'd like. And uh, each uh, of the five volumes are listed in the One Heart series on my site. And so I look forward to, and also you can Google me, uh, Patricia E. Adams, or the One Heart series. And uh, right now I think that you would probably be able to get them directly from me a lot faster. So uh, if you would do that for now, I would appreciate it very much. Once again, uh, my website is www.patriciaadams.us. And while you're out there, I have a ministry site that's attached. Everything is kind of centralized in patriciaadams.us. You can uh, find my MySpace page there, my blog there, um, as well as um, my uh, my business enterprises um, uh, linked to patriciaadams.us. So I look forward to serving you. And as I always say, I'm in his service because he has served me. You be blessed you be strengthened and you be healed and you be restored and I'll see you again on blogtalkradio.com forward slash Patricia Adams live on tomorrow. Thank you. I'm going to play us out for those of you who are still on the line with a song by Cheryl Brady.
Father, in the name of Jesus, I lift up the listeners of this broadcast to you, and I pray a hedge of protection around them. I thank you, Father, that you are a wall of fire round about them, and that you set your angels round about them, and I thank you that because they dwell in the secret place of the Most High, and they abide under the shadow of the Almighty, they will say of you, Lord, that you are their refuge, their fortress, and you they will trust. I thank you that you cover them with your feathers, and under your wings shall they trust. They shall not be afraid of the terror by night, or the fiery dart that flies by day. Only with their eyes will they behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because my listeners have made you, Lord, their refuge and fortress, no evil shall befall them, no accident will overtake them, neither shall any plague or calamity come near them, for you give your angels charge over them to keep them in all of your ways. And Father, I thank you because you've set your love upon them, therefore will you deliver them, they shall call upon you, and you will answer them, you will be with them in trouble, and will satisfy them with long life, and show them your salvation, not a hair of their heads shall perish. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, this, I think, is going to be like the last song um, that I play before we uh, sign out. We've got three minutes remaining, and this song is Karen Wheaton between Porch and Altar. (laughs) 